Well, let's open up in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for graciously allowing us to gather this morning as a community to hear your word. We pray that your spirit would fill us uh, with your words, that all my words would, would fall on deaf ears and all your words would fall on open ears. And that as we commune with you in your word, your spirit would aliven that and awaken us and quicken us. And that would uh, erupt this morning in vibrant worship of our Lord through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning is Transfiguration Sunday, which is the height of Epiphany. I call it the height of Epiphany because this is the last week in Epiphany if we're uh, following. It was. Wow, look at that. The glory of the Lord has been revealed. And so Transfiguration Sunday is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany, what we've been looking at is the time in the church calendar when Christ is revealed as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, as the one who the whole Old Testament, the whom the whole Old Testament had, had talked about. <clears throat> and so our reading today is going to be in Mark chapter 9. Uh, it's verses 2 through 9, but we're going to read verses verse 10 also. And so... Um, as we're closing the season of Epiphany with Transfiguration Sunday, we're transitioning in, into a season of the season of Lent. So this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which means Tuesday is Mardi Gras. And, and so in the church calendar, <clears throat> um, we, we work in, in cycles that are driven by the scriptures that follow the life cycle or the life of Christ with Advent, the, the coming of his birth, the proclamation of his coming, and then to Christmas and, and his birth, and then we're in Epiphany now, and then that leads us to Lent on, on Christ's ministry on earth and, uh, and his, his active obedience here and fulfilling all righteousness, and uh, Lent leads us towards Easter, and we have a season of Easter, and then and then Pentecost, and that is 26 weeks in the year, and the other 26 weeks we call ordinary time. And so the way the Lord normally works is he works in seasons, in patterns, over a length of time. If uh, you've noticed in your Christian walk, there might have been times where you have just been set free from a sin, there was a revelation, you saw something in Scripture, the Lord met you in his presence, you were filled with the Holy Spirit, and you made large steps forward in your sanctification, in, in your worship of the Lord, in uh, just finding pleasure in him, in him changing your heart in, in some ways. But that happens, that should happen with everybody, but what the... Uh, uh, what I think the scriptures point to is we tend to be changed in seasons after year after year after patterns and after going through multiple cycles of what seemingly, if you look at it day to day, it doesn't look like there's any progress. If you just take one step a day on a journey, it doesn't look like you're going very far. But if you look back after a year or two years, you've traveled a lot farther than, than when you narrow in on one or two days. And so 
That's what I think is the benefit of the church calendar and going through cycles and be driven by the scriptures and the life of Christ is, is it drives us by the scriptures to focus on Christ's life. And it's year after year that we look back and we see growth in individuals and as a community. And so uh, just to emphasize the, the church calendar and what the Lord does. And then he leaves 26, year, 26 weeks a year for ordinary time for you to, uh, congregations to be moved by the Spirit and to uh, teach on whatever the community needs and, and to give way for whatever, however the Spirit leads. And so I just kind of continue to charge us to be driven by the Scriptures, driven and focused on Christ continually. And the church calendar is, is by no means inspired by God. It's not... Uh, thus says the Lord, but it is, it is a good system. And so this morning we're going to read Mark uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. So let's read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, uh, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anybody with them, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so uh, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. But what happens in, in Epiphany and what we're looking at, if you were following the scripture readings for the whole thing, it was we didn't miss a single beat through the Gospel of Mark, all the way through Epiphany, after the birth of Christ. But now we jumped forward nine chapters to where he is transfigured before three disciples. And so this is the height of Epiphany when Christ is revealing his true nature, who he really is. And so starting in verse 2, where it says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain, by themselves. You've probably heard that Jesus had like an inner circle of disciples, which is Peter, James, and John, and this was, is when I think it was uh, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He had those three there. I think um, uh, when Peter's mother-in-law was, was healed, it was those three that were there that got to, got to see that. And that normally happens in, in discipleship or in friendship or in in relationships where you have an inner circle, you got an outer circle, you got people you're closer to, and that certainly plays into the life of Christ and what he's, uh, uh, what he's doing here, especially with Peter being the, the foundation, the head of the church. But I want us to pay attention that in Old Testament law, to witness to something, you needed two or three witnesses. And so Jesus is constantly, he's doing things uh, with two or three witnesses to confirm a reliability. And if it was one, 
we might naturally think that, like, yeah, uh, it was just one guy he saw. He could be making it up. His story doesn't have to corroborate with anybody else uh, necessarily. And, but when there's two or three that line up and that the Old Testament is, is saying you need this to confirm something, especially in, in cases of law, is, is, I think, a high reason why he brings two or three people with him, those three, all the time. And so this is a mountaintop experience that they get to experience. And it says that he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And so that word transfigured in the Greek literally is like metamorphous. It's he metamorphosized before them and they saw that he was changed. And so uh, if you look through the other synoptic gospels, especially in Luke's account, it says that his appearance of his face was altered. And so when you're reading this account of the transfiguration, you can't read it without thinking about when Moses went up to the mountain on Mount Sinai when he received the law and he begged God, let me see your glory. And he was saying that we don't, if we don't have your glory, if we don't have your presence, there's no point in us going from this mountain. You had delivered us from the Egyptians with signs and wonders and brought us into the wilderness and you've given us the law. And Moses is one thing is I want to see your glory. And he's gotten a lot of things so far. And he got the law, and he got instruction, and he got a lot of things. But the one he, thing he longed for was to see God's glory. And what was his response? Uh, no, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You cannot come to me face to face, see my glory in its full effect, and live. You would be burnt up. But I will grant you this. I'll hide you in this cleft of this rock, and I will pass by. And God literally says, you could see my hindquarters. <laughs> That's what you could see. That's what you can handle. And that's what the Lord does for, for Moses. And what happens? He, his face is shining, and he's coming down the mountain, and he has to veil it. And this is a radiated glory. He saw the glory of God up on the mountain in a theophany, and God passed before him. And his glory was so powerful that Moses' face is reflecting his glory, reflecting God's glory. But that's not what we see in the transfiguration. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not seeing God face to face, and he's not radiating his glory. His glory is emanating out of him. And so when Moses has to veil his face, and and it eventually, I I don't know if uh, the scriptures give us an idea of how long it took, but it eventually trickles off, and it's no more. uh, His face is no no longer shining. But in the transfiguration up on the mountain, we're seeing that Christ is removing the veil of his humanity and showing his, his true form, God himself. <clears throat> and so um, this week, and Lily and I usually read in the morning, read our Bibles together. We read our Bibles together separately. We're not reading the same thing. And uh, we've got that, that pattern in the morning. And, and this week, Lily was reading one of the Gospels. And when the disciples are or when Jesus rebukes the storm and it says, what sort of man is this? And Lily asked me and said, is, that, is this wrong? Is there something wrong here? I'm like, what's, what's, what's wrong? She said, well, isn't Jesus God? And they said, what sort of man is this? And it gave us an opportunity to talk about the hypostatic union. And, and yeah, it, Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. But he's also man. And so no, they weren't wrong. And so... 
up on the mountain, at this point, the disciples still, before the transfiguration, they still were wondering what sort of man is this? And I even believe after the transfiguration, they still got it wrong. And Peter at the end is wondering, they're like, what is he talking about this raising from the dead? And, but later in Second Peter, when Peter writes his epistles, this is the event that he says is confirmed in him to show the truth of who Christ really is. If we read in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, <clears throat> he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so this isn't talking about his baptism when he heard uh, the same thing, that this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And on the mountain he heard, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. But they weren't on a mountain, they were in a river. And so he's talking about the transfiguration, that this was to confirm to him the glory of the Christ. He was the one whom the whole Old Testament prophesied about. And so uh, this is what Peter confirms that, uh, that all the prophets are talking about. And even Moses himself in Deuteronomy says that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me among you, from whom your brothers, from, from your brothers, it is him to whom you shall listen. And so Moses prophesies about there's a man coming, there's a true prophet coming, it's him you want to listen to. And John, again, since he was on the mountain, confirms this in, in John 1.14. says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the writer of Hebrews also, in chapter 1, verse 3, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so it's the transfiguration. It's above all the casting out of demons, above the commanding the storms to be silent, um, healing the sick, raising the, the dead. All of those were signs and revelations of who Christ really was or really is, but it was the transfiguration that was the height of his epiphany, of his revealing, of, of he is showing his glory, because the glory is coming out of him. And so Psalm, uh, when it talks about him, him being radiant and his clothes becoming white, intensely white, that no one on earth could bleach, Psalm 104 speaks of, uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God is surrounded by light. Light emanates from his presence. And now we're seeing it is Christ who has been transfigured. He's gone through this metamorphosis to show that I, the light is coming out of me. It's coming from me. And it's to whom the whole Old Testament had prophesied about. And even in Daniel, <clears throat> when it talks about the Son of Man coming and the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, Daniel 7 says, starting in verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were, were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and became and came out, of, out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands, ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. And so when Christ is transfigured, not just his face is radiant, his clothes became radiant, and out of his presence came the radiance and the glory of God, that he is one with the Ancient of Days. He is the, the Son of Man that stands before the Ancient of Days and, and receives a kingdom and receives power. And so all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, speaks of that, that, that God is issuing light and his glory is a supreme brightness. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy 6.16 can say that he dwells in unapproachable light and Christ himself says that I am the light of the world. And so, and so when Peter, James, and John are seeing Christ transfigured, they're wondering about, like, what is this resurrection? They, they understand, but they're understanding that Christ was from the beginning of Scripture, from the beginning of time. There was one prophesied that was going to crush the serpent. There was going to be a true prophet that comes. There was going to be a true high priest that is going to come. And Christ is that person. And that's kind of juxtaposed to where even John the Baptist had sent disciples at, his disciples at, point, at some points and said, can you just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus is like, well, what did you come out to see? <laughs> tell him what you saw and go, go back and tell John. And, and there's a little bit in his ministry, there's, there's, there's mystery, there's wonder from the disciples of, is this really the one? Are we looking for another one? But it's the transfiguration when his glory and his radiance is emanating from his presence to shows that he is, is the one, that he is God in the flesh. And since... Uh, uh, and it says that Moses appeared there with a, Christ appeared there with Moses and Elijah, and they were talking, talking with him, talking with Jesus. And so normally we hear that Elijah represents all the prophets and, and Moses represents the law, and I think that's true. But I think there might be a little bit more to it than that. Um, when we see that Moses and Elijah both had these mountaintop theophany experiences with God where uh, Elijah's fleeing from uh, Jezebel and, and Ahab, and he's on, in the mountain. He's hidden in a cleft, and there's earthquakes and, and storms and all kinds of things, and God talks to him in a, in a whisper. But it's this mountaintop theophany that Elijah experiences, and the same thing with Moses on Mount Sinai, where the glory of God is revealed to him. He goes up to Mount Sinai, and, and, and God reveals himself to him. And so it says that they're talking with Jesus, and it's important that he's on, and that they're on a mountain. It seemed to be, uh, if you look at the other Gospels, it seemed to be that the disciples fell asleep, so this, and they went up to pray. And so it might have been late at night. It could have been, uh, it could have been an all-night prayer meeting, and they fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake, which was a common thing for the disciples, I guess. But uh, it's a common thing for me to not stay awake all night. <clears throat> but... Uh, Luke brings out what they were talking about. And they were talking about, in, in most English translations, it says that they were talking about his departure. But the word literally means they're talking about his exodus. And so Moses 
and Elijah knew what was coming, what they were looking for, and they were speaking. We don't know if it was words of encouragement or they're talking about a plan or what's going to happen, but they were talking about Christ's exodus. And in his glory, you know, he's going to, uh, as we move through the church calendar, we're moving towards Lent, and he steps down the mountain and starts moving towards Jerusalem in his earthly ministry. And in, in Lent, we're moving towards that and towards Good Friday and, and Easter. But the disciples didn't know what that meant. They did, Jesus sometimes plainly said that, I am going to be delivered to the high priest, and I will die, and in three days I will raise. He says that straightforward, and the disciples like, what is this parable? What does this mean? But Moses and Elijah got it. And so, uh, in verse 5 it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? I don't know what to say. I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of nervous. Let's just say something. Let's get some words out. Get them on the paper. But Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He, they didn't understand that even though Christ was revealed in glory, they, he probably still thought that Christ was going to come and overthrow Rome. He was going to come and be the one, the, the son of David who sits on his throne, who expels all the enemies of Israel in, in feats of strength. Um, he didn't understand that he was come, his mission to come to die. And so Peter says, let's make three tents. I don't know anybody besides maybe John Gray that would say, hey, it's been nice hanging out. This has been great. Let's tent. Let's put, set up some tents here. <laughs> That's not normally what we do, most of us. Um, but, but what Peter's talking about, I think Peter is onto something here. I think he, he is speaking um, eschatologically because in the Feast of Booths in Israel, it was to commemorate, they would... Uh, I think it's seven days, but it, the Feast of Booth was to commemorate the time that Israel had spent in the wilderness where they were nomadic and dwelling in tents. And even after the the temple was built and the second temple was built, they they had the Feast of Booths to remind them that God had delivered them out of Egypt with awesome signs and, and powers. And they dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years before God brought them to the promised land. And in the Feast of Booths, they would set up, they wouldn't set up tents of canvas. They wouldn't set up tents with zippers. There were tents of leaves and, and shrubs. And it was uh, supposed to symbolize and reminisce of the garden. That this is the, the end of things, even though they understood that even though we came into Israel, we came into the promised land, we came into building the temple, there is still a glory that is coming. There is still more kingdom to be had. And what Christ is doing, what God's doing in his kingdom is building another, another garden. And so I think Peter was onto something there. I don't think he was, uh, he was wrong to want to stay there. He was wrong to want to leave because Christ's mission was come to, come to, to die and be the sacrifice. But in his in whatever faith he had and whatever knowledge he had, I think he was onto something. And, and uh, uh, because he's seeing that this is Christ, he's coming to conquer, he's coming to bring us into the promised land. And so on to verse 7, it says, 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so this is the glory cloud, the same glory cloud that we see on Mount Sinai. This is the same glory cloud we see that engulfs the, the tabernacle when it's built and the temple when it's built. This is the same glory cloud that comes when God is pleased with his people, with his servants, and he comes to reveal himself. This is the same glory cloud that we see uh, throughout Scripture. And so when Christ is baptized, he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the mountain, he says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And so this is why in the Great Commission, we're supposed to baptize all nations, making them disciples of Christ, teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded, right? We are to listen to his commands and, and to his charge. And so there were things that Christ is going to say throughout the Gospels after this point that it does them well to listen to. It's not just on a morality basis. It's not just on a, he, he does teach on, on moral issues, on on various things uh, after he comes down out or comes down from the mountain. But mostly what he's focused on is his, uh, his, his substitutionary death and that he's going to the cross. When he comes down from the mountain, he's, his face is set towards Jerusalem. He's set towards uh, making a sacrifice. And most of what he's talking about is revealing what he's going to do. And the disciples ought to listen. But it says in verse 9 that as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Christ does this very frequently with people when he, when he casts out demons and heals and, and there's a certain glory or certain amount of attention uh, that he gets when he heals the sick, when he raises the dead. And I, I believe it's not because he doesn't want people to know who he is. It's because he doesn't want the attention that would come from that, where most of the Israelites wanted uh, the son of David, who, who would be the throne, who would be the Christ, the Messiah, to save them in a geopolitical sense, that they would come and rush, and in a revolutionary sense, force him to be king, force him into Jerusalem, uh, and attempt to force him to expel the Romans. I think he's, it seems to be in the scriptures that he, he's veiling his, his, his acts, he's not veiling his glory, but he's veiling his, his acts, and he's asking people to be silent because he doesn't want all the attention yet. He wants all the attention when he comes into Jerusalem, when he comes in on the donkey, then he wants the attention because he's ready to, be, to make the sacrifice with his life. And so in verse 10, it says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so the disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't understand that Christ's mission was coming to make himself a sacrifice, to be a sacrifice for sins. He is the one Isaiah prophesies that, that he will bear all of Israel's iniquities, that he will take away all of their sickness, he'll take away all of their transgressions, and they don't fully get it until the resurrection. 
And in the resurrection is when, in, in, the, in the transfiguration, we see that Christ is removing that veil temporarily to show himself as God in the flesh. And they start to get it. They see that this is the Christ, but they don't get it. And when he, when he gets sacrificed and when he dies, they go back. They don't understand. It's in the resurrection where he's finally revealed, where they finally get it. And so that's the glory that even in, in that Christ is leading us to, is to his sacrificial death, his atonement for sin, that that's how he's going to crush Satan. That's how he's going to expel the enemy. It's, he could come in with power. He's got legions of angels that could take him down, could have taken him down from the cross, could have fought for him. But that wasn't his mission. His mission was to die, to be obedient to the Father, to take the Father's wrath upon, it, upon himself. And the disciples, even in this instance, didn't get it. And so much like the disciples, we need that revelation. We need Christ to open our eyes. We often uh, think that Christ is going to come and, and save us from our sin in a way that's going to just be powerful and transforming. And that's true. In, in some instances, that happens. But it's through faith in his, in his substitution that he comes and, and defeats the enemy defeats our sin. And so this morning as, uh, as we worship and as and our, our prayer is, and I hope our, the hope of our heart is, that we do see Christ in his glory. We see him as who he truly is, that he would lift the veil and, and, and we would see him and we'd see his presence. And so let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Uh, revealing yourself, removing the veil uh, on the mountain to show your glory, that you do that for your disciples daily, that post-resurrection, Lord, we get to see your glory, we get to see your, your presence, we get to be near to you daily by your Holy Spirit. Come to us this morning and, and show us your face. Let us live and worship you face to face this morning, Jesus. Amen.